Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ever since I gave gave out the email address for questions, which is hello at crossexamine.org, I've got scores of questions, and I apologize, I can't get to all of them. But to this, in this program, I'm going to try and set aside most of the program to deal with some of the questions that you've emailed me. Many of them are great questions, and uh, they deserve a hearing. I can't always get back to everybody via email, so uh, I will try and get to many of your questions. We have questions on spiritual gifts. We have questions on no-fault divorce. We have questions on evil and why would God allow bad things to happen to good people, we even have somebody else is still asking about the flat earth. I can't believe that, but that's still going on. We have a question about Deuteronomy 28 uh, and some other issues we're going to hopefully get to today. You're listening to Cross-Examined with Frank Turk and the American Family Radio Network. Before I go any further, I want to mention that this Tuesday night and Wednesday morning, I'll be in Arkansas uh, for the Vertical 3 Conference, which apparently is a, quite a big youth conference. It's a Vertical 3 Conference in Little Rock. And I'll be speaking there, I think, on Tuesday night and also Wednesday morning, the uh, 24th and the 25th of July. If you're anywhere near Little Rock, it's a quite a big youth conference. Uh, the Vertical 3, it's called. If you go to our website, crossexamined.org, click on events, you'll see a Frank Turk calendar there. Just go there. Hope to see you there if you're in the area. All right, let's go to some of these questions uh, I got a question from a man by the name of Jake. He says, I'm happy to be emailing you about a question that I've been debating with friends on lately and would love to hear your opinion on it. Do spiritual gifts exist today? More specifically, does the gift of tongues and healing exist today? From what I've read so far in a book by John MacArthur and in Norman Geiser's Systematic Theology, I've come to the conclusion that the spiritual gifts of tongues has ceased. Is this the case? As far as other gifts are concerned, some still exist and others have also passed apostleship and the sign uh, gifts associated with it. I'd love to hear your opinion on it, uh, on these gifts as well. I do realize this this isn't exactly an apologetics issue. However, I'd like to know the truth or is this a gray area? Please inform me. And he enjoys the podcast. Thank you for that, Jake. Um, You know, uh, I learned quite a bit from Dr. Norman Geiser, as you could well imagine, uh, traveled with him for many years, went to his seminary, wrote two books with him. Uh, so I tend to side with what he says with regard to spiritual gifts. Uh, although um, I think, uh, let's just talk about tongues for a second. As far as I can see in the scriptures, every time tongues are spoken of, uh, particularly in the book of Acts, it's always a foreign language. It's always somebody trying to communicate to somebody who hasn't heard the gospel in a language they can even they can understand, even though the person speaking doesn't know that language naturally. He's given the supernatural power to speak the gospel in the tongue of the person he's trying to reach. That's what seems to be the case throughout the book of Acts. It's always a known language. Now, Paul seems to suggest perhaps this is debatable that maybe there's uh, there's a private prayer language, you might say, in 1 Corinthians 4 or 14, I think. That's possible interpretation. Um, but it sure seems that 
in all of the instances where tongues are actually uh, done in the scriptures, in, in terms of it actually being an historical event, it's always a foreign language. Now, this isn't something we divide over as Christians. If you want to believe tongues exist and think they do, fine. If, if not, that's fine, too. But it is an interesting theological question. It's not an essential issue. Uh, after reading Craig Keener's uh, two-volume hernia-inducing set called Miracles, as you know, we've earlier this year had probably five or six shows on the issue of miracles, I've come to the conclusion that that tongues can still occur today. Obviously, if God wants to do a miracle, he can anytime he wants. And I think that there are instances where people are given the ability to speak languages they might not know personally when God is trying to get somebody the message. But if somebody has the gift of tongues to do this on command, like the apostles, well, maybe not. But God might give somebody temporarily the ability to do so. The same thing is true with the gift of healing. I think that God can heal people, and sometimes God might heal people through others. But do, do I believe that there are people out there like the apostles who seem to have the gift of healing uh, readily at their command? And it doesn't seem like that's the case. Uh, in fact, the apostles themselves seems to have seems to have lost the gift of healing. And Paul says, you know, pray for so and so, and and uh, Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach. I mean, well, if he if he can heal people, why doesn't he just heal Timothy? Uh, Paul Paul couldn't even heal the thorn in his flesh if, in fact, it was some sort of disease. We don't know what it was. So um, it does appear that the apostles at some point ran out of this gift where God maybe took it away from them because they had been authenticated enough as the true apostles. Uh, so I think the fact of of these gifts might exist. In other words, when God wants them to happen, obviously he can do them. But whether somebody has the gift as an apostle would have 2000 years ago, I don't think that's the case. All right. Now, again, this is not something we divide over, but it's a very interesting topic. And I think obviously if God wants to do something to get the word to people, to get the message of the gospel to people, obviously he can do it. And uh, Craig Keener gives several examples in his verily, very thoroughly researched book, uh, two volume set miracles of present day instances of this happening. So I have no doubt it can happen, but I don't think there are people out there with the gift. I think that God does it on occasion through people, but it's not like they have it continually. In fact, years ago, there was a famous televangelist who claimed to have the gift of healing. At the same time, he's on TV asking people for money to, so he could build a hospital. Well, does anyone see the contradiction here? Yeah. <laughs> if you have the gift of healing, you don't build hospitals, you empty them. Okay, so in any event, interesting question on spiritual gifts. Again, not something we divide over, but an interesting theological question. I got another question from a man by the name of Christian who's written before, uh, and uh, he has an issue with no-fault divorce. Uh, he thinks I'm against it, which I am. He says, I've done some research on your position on no-fault divorce, and I was curious as to your reasoning about the immorality of no-fault divorce. Okay, let me stop right there. How about God saying, I hate divorce? Is that good enough? <laughs> I mean, or how about, and that's Old Testament. How about New Testament, where uh, there appears to be just one justification, well, maybe one and a half abandonment uh, for divorce, and that is, of course, marital unfaithfulness. Uh, abandonment could also include, obviously, physical abuse. You wouldn't want to keep somebody in a relationship with the other person who was, physical, was physically abusive. But it's clear, it's a far cry from no-fault divorce. 
Uh, he says, I've developed a perspective that differs from yours, and I'm willing to be convinced. Well, I don't care if you differ from me. I, want you to, I, don't, I don't want you to differ from the scriptures, okay? <laughs> that's, that's really the issue. You can differ from me. If I'm wrong and I have the wrong interpretation of the scriptures, then fine. In fact, when people ask you controversial issues, controversial questions, um, sometimes I say, look, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what God thinks because, look, I'm not the moral arbiter of the universe. My nature isn't goodness. I don't, I don't determine right and wrong. I discover what right and wrong is. And so what I think isn't really the issue, what God's nature has revealed, because goodness is God's nature, and how what he reveals not only through natural law, but through the scriptures, should help us understand the right view of divorce. Now, there's really, there's really two questions here. Uh, there's the the question about morality, and then there's the question about whether that ought to be legislated. And they're sometimes two different questions because you don't necessarily legislate against everything you think is immoral. Uh, there may be instances where you might, as a society, decide to allow something uh, that you know is immoral, but it's not a an inherent evil like murder or that kind of thing. Uh, for example, you might think that uh, drinking is immoral, but we might not prohibit alcohol use for everybody. Uh, you might think uh, that, um, well, that divorce is immoral because God says it's 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 not right, and 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 we may as a society decide, well, we're going to allow more reasons for divorce than the biblical mandate because this is not a theocracy here, and we'll unpack this more after the break. You're listening to Cross Examined with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website, crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. And uh, our website has a ton of stuff on it, so check it out. New articles almost every day. Uh, And uh, we're back in two minutes with more, so don't go away. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined Podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button, or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. You're back with me, Frank Turek. Talking about some of the questions you've emailed me at hello at crossexamine.org. We're talking about no-fault divorce. And Christian writes in and thinks that there are some good things that might result from no-fault divorce. He gives a list of them. He says, no-fault divorce simply gives more feasibility to the cessation of bad marriage, one that needs to end. Before no-fault divorce in the 70s, there were plenty of people that were stuck in these awful relationships. Okay, let me end right there. He's got several more points, but... Yeah, that might be the case. That might be a good result from a bad policy. Sometimes you get a good result from a bad policy. Um, Sometimes you can get a very good result from a bad method even. Like, for example, uh, the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which uh, forced the integration of schools, was a good result, but it was a bad process. The Supreme Court doesn't shouldn't be deciding those issues. It's the legislature that should be deciding those issues. Uh, so they used a bad process to get a good result. It was the right decision morally, but not legally, because that's not the way you change the Constitution. You're supposed to change the Constitution through the amendment process. Uh, if you want to somehow create a new right, you're not the court isn't supposed to create it. 
And that, by the way, that's why we're in the mess we're in now. Why, why every Supreme Court justice is, is, a, is, a, is a death battle to the end in terms of confirmation or a battle to the death because they know that these judges get up there and they legislate their own political opinion. If they were just interpreting and applying the Constitution, you wouldn't have these big, crazy death battles on confirmation. If the people were up there, the judges were up there just just interpreting the law as written, you wouldn't need, you wouldn't have this, all this, these scare tactics on both sides about somebody getting up there and legislating their political point of view. The only reason abortion is legal in this country is because the Supreme Court made it legal without the will of the people, in fact, expressly against the will of the people. In any event, I digress. Let me go back to this no-fault divorce thing. I admit that no-fault divorce laws have helped some people who were in very bad relationships get out of them. There's no question about that. But does, does that mean that that's the best policy for the entire nation or for each state when it comes to divorce. And, and it's, a, it's commonly said that exceptions make bad laws. What do we mean by that? Well, um, you may get a good result from a bad law, but that doesn't mean it's a good law. Uh, you, may, you may have to rush your pregnant wife to the hospital because she's about to give birth, but does that mean that you ought to do away with all speed limits? Because on a rare occasion, an exception, you have to do that. No, if you did that, quite obviously, more people would be killed if you did away with all speed limits, just because on a very rare occasion, you have to speed due to an emergency. And the issue of no-fault divorce has led to a nation of broken families and more importantly, broken children which has then led to a whole array of negative effects on society. I list these negative effects, by the way, in the book, Correct, Not Politically Correct. Uh, the subtitle is How Same-Sex Marriage Hurts Everyone. And I point out that the bigger problem than even same-sex marriage has been no-fault divorce. In fact, no-fault divorce has helped bring us same-sex marriage because it makes marriage all about the romantic desires of adults and nothing about children. Well, if marriage isn't about children, then why not let same-sex couples get married? If it has nothing to do with children, if it's all just about the romantic desires of two people, then how can you say that a man and a man can't marry or a woman and a woman can't marry? I mean, if that's your, if that's your logic for marriage, that it's just about the romantic feelings of adults, and once those romantic feelings go away, well, what's the big deal? Um. Let's just get a divorce and move on. Anyway, I list all of these horrific negative negative uh, uh, effects in that book. Correct, not politically correct. And if I can pull it off my shelf here, I'll go through some of these because it's it's actually horrific, and it is essentially has to do more with fatherlessness. That that's really the problem because no fault divorce leads to fatherlessness for so many kids. Children from fatherless homes are seven times more likely to live in poverty, six times more likely to commit suicide, more than twice as likely to commit crime, more than twice as likely to become pregnant out of wedlock, worse off academically and socially, worse off physically and emotionally when they reach adulthood. And check this out. 
60% of American rapists, 63% of Americans use suicide, 70% of America's long-term prison inmates, 70% of Americans reform school attendees, 71% of America's teenage pregnancies, 71% of America's high school dropouts, 72% of America's adolescent murderers, 85% of America's youth prisoners, 85% of America use, America's youth with behavioral disorders, and 90% of America's runaways all come from fatherless homes. There are probably half the people listening to me right now who have been scarred by divorce. Look, I'm 56 years old. My parents are 82 and 80. If, I, if they got divorced right now, I'd be scarred. Divorce is something that hurts not only children, it hurts society. And to just to say we're going to cavalierly just go ahead with no-fault divorce, just close our eyes to it and say, well, it's just all about people being able to get out of bad relationships. I think while you may get some good results out of doing that, you're going to get a lot more bad results. Now, it's not just a cost-benefit analysis, don't get me wrong, but this gentleman is trying to make a cost-benefit analysis case. He's got a few more points here, which um, even if they're correct, the benefits of no-fault divorce do not outweigh the negatives. I mean, think about this, ladies and gentlemen. I know that marriage is not just a contract. It's actually more than a contract. But marriage in our country now is the only contract that the party who wants to break the contract can do so with no negative repercussions. It's like not even a contract anymore. A contract is supposed to hold both parties to their vows regardless if one or both of them want to get out of it. The contract is there for a reason. It's to protect both parties in case one of them wants to get out prematurely or not hold up their vows. That's what a contract is supposed to be. Why even have the contract if you can just dissolve it at a, on a whim? No fault. No fault just basically means no reason. Now, this is part of the sexual revolution, of course. And the new religion in America, as I've said many times before, is the religion of sex. That it's all about what I want to do sexually. And if you put any obstacles in my way of what I want to do sexually, I'm going to call you every name in the book. That's what people are thinking now. They're not going to reason through the, through the issue. They're going to call you names. So Christian, uh, who wrote about this, I don't buy it. <laughs> I just don't buy that no-fault divorce is a good thing. No-fault divorce has been a tragedy. Again, I admit there may be good things that have come of it. But by and large, it's been one big, bad negative. And God says, I hate divorce for a reason. It's, uh, it's and C.S. Lewis put it best, divorce is like cutting up a living body. And, and, and what happens is when you make it too easy, what happens is, is when couples hit those inevitable trouble periods, those inevitable periods of friction, which is always going to happen when you have two broken people in one relationship. There's always going to be periods of friction and doubt and struggle. What no-fault divorce does is it gives you what you think is an easy way out instead of, if, you were, if your feet were held to the fire, instead of forcing you to work it out, which is really what you need to do in most cases. It a, a, a good, good marriage laws force you to stay together for the benefit of you, the benefit of your children, and the benefit of society. No-fault divorce gives you an easy way of just punching out and saying, 
well, that didn't work. Let me just try something new. And you wind up going from one relationship to another relationship to another relationship. And unfortunately, many people get hurt when you do so. Now, I'm not here to throw stones at people that have had divorces. If you think you've had a divorce and it wasn't biblical, well, just put that under the cross and move forward, just like any other sin. All I'm trying to do is prevent people from too cavalierly breaking up a relationship that God has said is sacred. And he said it's sacred for a reason. Too many people get hurt when it's just too cavalierly done. All right, another question. Uh, Silas writes, I debate atheists quite frequently and often use many points I've learned from you. The question I hear most by far is the classic, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Now, I know this is generic, but the truth is I still haven't heard a good answer from an apologist on this. Okay, let me stop right here, Silas. I, I hate to be direct with you, but if there's any issue that has been addressed quite frequently by apologists, it's this one. Because it is one of the greatest objections to Christianity. And if you have not heard someone address this, you have not been reading enough. You cannot be a reader, or I should say you cannot be a leader without being a reader. You cannot defend the Christian faith without learning from others. There are so many books on this issue. I've written books that have content on this issue. Stealing from God is probably the one that has the most on the issue of evil. But to say you haven't heard a good answer from an apologist on this just means, I, I hate to say it, you just haven't been reading enough, okay? <laughs> or you haven't been watching enough. Because if there's any issue that apologists deal with, is the issue of evil. But let me continue with your, uh, with your question. You say, we talk about the fine-tuning he has done, God has done, including the overwhelming details of our complicated bodies that makes the something-from-nothing argument outrageously silly. However, why allow our bodies to fail? Why allow diseases and afflictions to our bodies? Why are children born with dysfunctions and mental challenges? How do we explain this? Well, actually, let me point out that, and these are great questions, by the way, but let me just point out that the entire Christian worldview is an answer to these questions. Christianity is answering the problem of evil. That's what the whole thing is about. God actually comes to earth because we've committed evil. We've rebelled against him, and he enters the bloodstream of humanity to solve the problem of evil for us. And ultimately, evil is going to be quarantined in a place called hell. And those who have accepted the grace that God has provided to us will be with him in heaven. I mean, the ultimate as my friend Greg Kokel would say in his book, The Story of Reality, that's really what the story is about. How, do, how, how does God fix the problem of evil? It's Christianity. Now, when we come back from the break, we'll deal with some of these more specific questions you have. You know, why does God allow our bodies to fail and all these diseases and children getting sick and all that? We'll get to that. But the point is, just keep in mind, the whole story of Christianity is a solution to the problem of evil. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. College campuses are hostile to the Christian faith, and three out of four young people walk away from the church once they go to college. That's why we go to college campuses and present I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the United States and even all over the world. When we do this, 
we don't charge students a dime. That's why we need your financial support. And in fact, over the past couple of years, we've been able to grow dramatically because of your generous support. And 100% of your donations go to ministry. Zero percent go to building. So when you give to Cross-Examined, you'll be giving to help us go reach young people where they are. Would you consider giving today? Thank you so much, and thank you so much for what you've done already. The problem of evil is the question we're dealing with right now from Silas, who asked it via the email address, hello at crossexamined.org. Why does God allow our bodies to fail? Why do we have these diseases? Well, part of the Christian worldview, as you know, is the fact that we live in a fallen world, that Satan introduced sin into reality by making a free choice to rebel against God, and then Adam and Eve did the same thing. And so it's quite obvious we live in a fallen world. That's what this is all about. And the question, I know this may sound a little a little strong, um, and maybe not as compassionate as it should be, but let me just give you the bald truth here. The question isn't why do bad things happen to good people? The question should be why do good things happen to bad people? Because none of us are really good. All of us have done evil. Nobody is essentially good. We're all depraved. We're all bent toward evil and we've all committed many moral crimes. So the bigger question is, why does God do good things for us? Because technically, according to Christian theology, there are no good people. Oh, there may be people who are less bad than others, but we're all good. Now, none of us likes to hear this. We think, oh, no, we're so much better than a mass murderer. I'm so much better than so-and-so. Yeah, okay, you might be better than them, but really what you mean is you're less bad than them because naturally you're bent toward evil as I am. And Jesus actually addressed this issue almost directly. If you go to Luke chapter 13, Jesus is speaking and Luke introduces it this way. He says, now there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. So apparently some people in the area of Galilee were killed by Pilate and he mixed their blood with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered this. Do you think that the Gal that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way, in this way, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or do you think, or no, he says, or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Now, the Tower of Siloam, some tower fell on people and they died. 18 people died. So there, there's kind of a natural disaster there, whereas the pilot was a not natural disaster, but one human being doing evil to other human beings. Um, so you got kind of both kinds of evil here. You got natural evil and then you've got human evil. And Pilate uh, does this to these Galileans and then this tower falls on the people in Siloam, and Jesus says, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Wow. And if we were to sit here and go through scripture after scripture um, that shows that 
we are bent toward evil and have sinned. We, we could spend hours here doing that. Let me just give you a few of them. We could start in Genesis 6, where the Lord saw that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was evil all the time. And he says the same thing in Genesis 8.21, when he says the inclination of man's heart is evil from childhood. Uh, Solomon declared in 1 Kings, there's no one who does good, who does not sin against God. Uh These are just, there's several others in the Old Testament. Of course, Jeremiah says, uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond human cure. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. It's evil. Uh, Jesus said, you, though your thoughts are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Your thoughts are evil, he says. Uh, He says, I know in John 5, 42, that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. Uh, Paul famously says in uh, Romans chapter three, quoting the Old Testament, that none have done good. All have sinned. All have fallen short. There's nobody good out there. Not one. We're all evil. So the question isn't why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? But let's just assume that the premise of your argument or the idea that there are bad things that happen to good people, generally good people, and in the sense that they're less bad than others, you know, the evil prosper and the, and the, and the, the righteous don't, you might ask, well, why would God allow that to happen? Well, there are many reasons. And in fact, we talk about this quite a bit in the book, Stealing from God. So if you want the details, I'll just give you a couple of reasons. Paul, of course, talks about in Romans five, how suffering and person and, and, uh, let me get the exact language here uh, that Paul talks about in Romans chapter five. So I don't want to misquote Paul. That would be good. <laughs> that wouldn't be good. He says uh, in five, three, he says, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character and character hope. So suffering helps produce ultimately good things. And James says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, because these trials can produce patience in you. Uh, Of course, the writer of Hebrews says that God disciplines those he loves. I mean, think about this. If bad things never happen to you, yet you have this fallen human nature, what would you become if you got everything you wanted, if nothing ever went wrong? I don't know. I don't know about you, but I'd become even more of a moral monster than I already am. I'd become it'd become all more, more and more about me. I'd be more and more selfish if I was never told no, if I got everything I wanted. I mean, what do you call kids who. Who get everything they want, we call them spoiled. Why are they spoiled? What's spoiled? Their character spoiled. It becomes all about them. You can't give a child everything he or she wants. You will ruin that child. You have to say no. You have to put obstacles in their way. You have to let them let them go through difficulty and struggle. Because if they don't struggle, they're never going to earn or learn these more deeper virtues. If you bail them out every time they hit a rough spot and try and ease the pain completely, you're not doing them any favors. 
They've got to go through difficulty. I have to go through difficulty. You have to go through difficulty. So these difficulties can make us more and more like Jesus. In fact, the scriptures actually say that Jesus learned obedience through suffering, and he didn't even have the sin nature. So we might not always be able to see why certain bad things happen. Um, it's called the ripple effect that will should help us realize why we can't see them. I mean, we're finite. We're in this one period of time. But things can ripple forward into the future to affect other events and other people, even hundreds of years into the future. We might never see what those ripples do. I mean, people will come and say, why does, say, a baby die? Well, I can tell you why babies die in general. We live in a fallen world, and God's going to ultimately redeem it. But I can't tell you why a specific baby dies. Why? Because I can't see the end from the beginning. I can't see how that's ultimately going to work out. I can't see. Maybe a baby dying today might ripple forward into the future and affect so many people and other events that a great evangelist 500 years from now is going to rise up and save millions of people, partially because that baby died today. I can't see that. God can. I mean, we see examples of this in the scripture when Joseph is sold into slavery in the Old Testament by his brothers. He later rises to prominence in, in Egypt and actually saves the very family that sold him into slavery. He saves them from a famine. And he looks at them in Genesis chapter 50 and he says, you sold me into slavery. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, the saving of many lives. There's an instance where you see the ripple effect actually take place. The very people that did evil actually are the beneficiaries of that evil later. That's the ripple effect. So I, I, there's many things I don't understand. There's many, th- many answers I don't have, but I know why I don't have the answers. I'm finite. God's infinite. God can see the end from the beginning. He can make it all work together for good, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8. And by the way, if anybody has any objection to God because of evil, they've actually just proven God by suggesting there's evil. Because evil wouldn't exist unless good existed, and good wouldn't exist unless God existed. So. If you're going to say that I can't believe in a good God because too many bad things happen to good people, first of all, you're, you've just proven God because you've proven that there are such a thing as bad things and evil, but evil wouldn't exist unless good existed and good wouldn't exist unless God existed. You see, evil doesn't exist unless good exists because evil is a privation or a lack in good. Evil is, evil is like cancer. As I've said before, cancer is an evil, but it only exists in a good body. If you take all the, the cancer out of a body, you got a better body. If you take all the body out of the cancer, you got nothing. In other words, evil doesn't exist on its own. So if there's something evil out there, and there is, and the questioner who brings this up is admitting there's something evil, and the atheists who bring this up is admitting there's something evil out there, they have just proven God. They've just proven there's got to be a standard of goodness out there. This doesn't get you all the way to the Christian God. Don't get me wrong. You've got to show more evidence that it's the Christian God. You just know there's a standard beyond you when you when you look at evil. And isn't it just beautiful when you think about it? That as ugly as evil is, the very God of the universe came into this universe to save us from it. And the reason, of course, evil exists is because of free choice. Without free choice, you couldn't do evil, but of course you couldn't do good evil. This wouldn't be a moral world. We couldn't love if we didn't have free will, if we didn't have free choice. So it's a good question, Silas, but it's ultimately a misplaced question. And 
there's so much written on this. Our book, Stealing from God, has quite a bit in it. Uh, I know Clay Jones has d- done a, a, a book on evil. Um, William Lane Craig has a, a book called, uh, I think, Hard Questions, Real Answers, that deals with some of this. Um, there's been entire... <laughs> In, in, in entire, I'm looking at a book right now on my shelf on evil by Thomas Aquinas. These are all of uh, the writings of Aquinas on evil. I mean, this this issue, this is a great book. I'm looking at it on my shelf right now by Peter Kreft called "Making Sense Out of Suffering." Uh, there are several excellent books. Here's the Clay Jones book I'm looking at. Why does God allow evil? We've had Clay on the program a couple of years ago to talk about that. Um. Even uh, Jay Warner Wallace handles some of that in his book, God's Crime Scene. So there's plenty of popular level resources that will help you on this issue. So check that out. All right. But good question. I had another question about Deuteronomy 28 that is kind of in the same vein regarding evil. Why would God allow evil and even pronounce curses on people? That doesn't appear to be congruent with the character of God. We'll get to that. We'll talk a little bit about how you know what you know in the Bible right after the break as well. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, so do not go away. we got a lot more in the final segment. Don't forget, I'll be at the Vertical 3 Conference in Little Rock, Arkansas this Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. Check it out on our website, crossexamine.org. Click on events right there. See you in two minutes. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type Cross-Examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Early September... We're starting a brand new online course called Fearless Faith. Myself, cold case homicide detective Jay Warner Wallace, and of course, Dr. Mike Adams of UNC Wilmington is a conservative and a Christian and is on college campuses. He will help you as well as myself and Jay Warner Wallace how to get a fearless faith, not just before you go to college or whether you're in high school or college, but even if you're just at the water cooler at work. How can you develop a fearless faith, have the evidence that you need and the questions that you need to interact with people in a fearless yet winsome way? So you want to take that course online. And during that course, this is a unique thing about the courses we run. You can actually interact, interact with us live via Zoom video. I mean, most other online courses you take, if they're video based, you just watch some guy preaching or, or teaching and uh, that's it. Well, yeah, you'll, you'll watch video, but you'll also be able to interact with us live via video. We have uh, several 90-minute Q&A video sessions where we're on live with you, and you can just ask us questions, and hopefully we'll have good answers. So check all that out. By the way, if you, the only way you do that is you sign up for the premium course, and you got to sign up for the premium course soon because once we fill up those courses, we don't take more students because we want to make sure the courses, the classes aren't too big so you don't get a chance to ask a question if you want to. So go to crossexamine.org, click on uh, online courses. It'll take you over there to uh, Reason You, and you can uh, see all the courses that are up there. The newest one coming up is Fearless Faith in September. Great for homeschoolers, by the way, or high schoolers, or folks about to go to college, or anyone just out there in the world. Uh, It's going to help quite a bit. So check that out, Fearless Faith. 
I have a, a, a long question here from uh, Mick regarding Deuteronomy 28. And uh, the gist of it is, I can't read the entire um, the in, the entire email. It would take too long. But basically, um, the gist of it is, is that apparently a friend of his is losing his faith because of Deuteronomy 28.21. And uh, when you go to Deuteronomy 28.21, uh, you you read that God has is putting a curse on the Israelites because of disobedience. And uh, this apparently is something that for some is just hard to swallow. It seems to be a moral problem here. In fact, Deuteronomy 28, 21 says the Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering. This is if you, and there's a whole list of curses in Deuteronomy 28. We don't have time to go into it right now, but According to the friend of this gentleman, Mick, this is just intolerable that how could a good God do this? And I know maybe this just strikes people differently, but I have no problem with God judging people. I, I, I think God should judge people. Um, but if he does, none of us are going to make it. <laughs> I mean, none of us. We, we should never ask for justice because if we get justice, none of us are going to make it. We should ask for grace. <laughs> Mercy and grace. You know, I've said it before. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And justice, or I should say grace, is getting what you don't deserve. That's unmerited favor. And when I read in Deuteronomy 28 that Israel, under the old covenant, if they disobey God, there's going to be harsh consequences. I, I think that's, that's what justice is. Now, thankfully, God doesn't want to give us justice. He wants to give us grace, but not all of us will accept grace. And that's why at the end, there's going to be a border between heaven and hell. By the way, I just wrote this article. I probably won't get to it today. We're going to run out of time here, but it's on our website. It's on One News Now. It's on uh, our website. It's on townhall.com and also uh, at the stream, stream stream.org. And the title of it, uh, this uh, new article has to do with borders, by the way. Um, the title of it is something like, I don't even have it in front of me, but it's why everyone believes in secure borders and why America needs them. Everybody believes in secure borders. In fact, uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem just recently wrote an article, which I reference in my article about how borders are biblical and walls are even biblical. Now, this isn't to say that we shouldn't care for the, for the refugees and the immigrants. I'm not saying that, but to say that we should have open borders is nonsense. In fact, I even say in the article, remarkably, even in eternity, there's going to be a border. There's going to be a border between heaven and hell. In fact, here's what I say. I just called it up here. The art, I say, remarkably, there will even be a border in the afterlife between heaven and hell because God can't force free creatures to love him or one another. Forced love is impossible. Love requires freedom and freedom requires the security that your choices will be respected, even if it means that you want an eternal border between you and God. So some people don't want grace. They want justice. Well, God will give them justice. Deuteronomy 28 is just about justice. I know it sounds harsh, but justice is justice. You get what you deserve. Now, thankfully, 
God doesn't want to give us justice, as I mentioned. He wants to give us grace, but not all of us want to accept grace. And God will not force you into heaven against your will. If you don't want him now, you're not going to want him in eternity. Now, Mick, I don't know if that's a complete answer for you. It's probably not. Um, but personally, I don't have any issue with God judging people. Now, thankfully, um, when you read the Old Covenant, it was it was more seem it seemed to be more works based. Not that they were saved by works, but it was like if you do X, I'll do Y. Much of it was not all of it because there was an an unconditional covenant covenant given with Abraham that would bless all nations, and that would bleed into the new covenant. Everybody could be blessed if you accept the blessing. But there was in the old covenant, you obey me and things will go well. You don't obey me, things won't go well. Now, unfortunately, we've taken that old covenant mentality and we've imported it into the new covenant, the New Testament, and we think things work the same way. If you do good, things are always going to go well for you. If you don't do good, well, then things are going to go bad. And, and then people write in and say, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, first of all, as I mentioned, not everybody, none of us are good. We're all, we're all evil. But secondly, we're under grace. We're not under do X and Y will happen. You're not guaranteed that good things are going to happen to you here on earth. What you're guaranteed is, is that your names are written in heaven and that ultimately you'll be resurrected to a paradise with God, even if you have to go through difficulty here. That's what you're guaranteed. If you want to accept that, if you don't, God won't force you into heaven against your will. So, um, the new covenant is what we're under now. And that's a covenant of grace. The law is written on our hearts and out of gratitude for what God has done to us, we live it out. But it's not, God, God will never owe you anything. He will never owe me anything because of what we do. He will give us rewards for the good things we do. But he doesn't owe us things here on earth that, God, I'm following you now. Why aren't things going well for me? Well, maybe God's trying to make you more like Jesus. Maybe that's, I mean, that's why we're here, to become more like Christ. And sometimes, in order to know and grow in Christ, pain is necessary. Pain is necessary. But I digress now. I want to get to one final question. Somebody wrote in about the flat earth. <laughs> now, I think I know the reason for this, that people are starting to think, the Christians are trying to read the Bible and think that the Bible teaches a flat earth. And um, I, I, I hasten to spend any time on this. Please don't email me more any questions about flat earth, okay? I, I'm sorry, but it's n I'm not going to waste any more time on it because it's an obvious error to believe the earth is flat. I, I can't even believe I have to say this on the radio anymore, okay? I think it may be an honest error, though, when people are trying to say, well, the Bible teaches it and they're trying to take sola scriptura in a way that was never meant to be taken. What is sola scriptura? Scripture alone. Sola scriptura does not mean that you get all of your information from the scriptures. Let me say that again. It does not mean that you get all of your information from the scriptures. In fact, you couldn't even understand the scriptures or the newspaper for that matter without knowing certain things about reality before you get to the scriptures. You couldn't know what the scriptures say without logic, without grammar, without knowing about cause and effect, without knowing there's a creation, without knowing that there's some power that is required for certain effects, cause and effect, like God. Now, this whole 
theory, or I should say this, this whole discipline of study in theology is called prolegomena, which means what you do before you do theology. You have to know logic. You have to know grammar. You have to know about certain aspects about reality before you can even understand what the Bible says. And this base of knowledge that everyone has, regardless of whether or not they have the scriptures, is called general revelation or sometimes natural revelation. It has also been put this way. God has written two books. God has written the book of nature and the book called the Bible. And both of them can help us understand what reality is about. And in fact, you couldn't even know what the Bible says without a pre-existing natural revelation. In terms of knowing, natural revelation comes before special revelation, before the Bible. In terms of authority, most of the time the Bible is clearer than natural revelation, but not always. Sometimes our natural understanding of the world helps us get the proper interpretation of what the Bible says. For example, the Bible says the sun rises and sun sets, but it's speaking from an observational perspective because it does appear to rise and set. But we do that today. As I've said before, if you listen to the weatherman tonight, the weatherman's going to say sunrise tomorrow at 612. He's not going to say earth rotation will become apparent at 612. He's using observational language. And the Bible is using the same observational language. So when we read the Bible, we're using natural revelation, nature to help us interpret what the Bible means. And so when you're reading things in the Bible that seem to suggest a flat earth, that's, those are figures of speech or observational language. They're not literally trying to teach you a flat earth. Natural revelation tells you the earth is round. And so sola scriptura doesn't mean what you think it means. You say, what does it mean then? It means that the scriptures alone are what we need for doctrines about salvation. Rather than the scriptures plus popes, plus church councils, plus church tradition. In other words, Sola Scriptura came out of the idea that we needed to reform some of the abuses and teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. It didn't mean that you got every piece of information about life from the scriptures. It meant the issues related to salvation and other doctrines you got from the Bible, not these other things. That's what it meant. Anyway, friends, we'll get back to more of this next time. I'm Frank Turek. Great being with you. Email me hello at crossexamine.org. See ya. We work hard to create great content and deliver truth and valuable insights to all of our Cross Examine podcast listeners. If you agree, take 30 seconds out of your busy schedule to leave us a five star rating so more people like you can find us. Just look for the Cross Examined official podcast, three words on iTunes google play or stitcher we are truly grateful for your support 